On today's Key to Culture podcast, we're going to speak with Sean Harvey, Chief Compassion Officer at Symponia, Inc. Sean speaks from a deep well of experience and knowledge about gender dynamics in the workplace. And Sean and I are going to discuss reimagining the systems that have oppressed and divided us. So without further ado, let's get to the podcast. Welcome to the Key to Culture podcast, a show that explores the sometimes unseen forces that animate, connect, and unleash thriving companies and teams. You're listening to the Key to Culture podcast, exploring vital energy and life force at work with Tom Kelly. Welcome to the Key to Culture podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have Sean Harvey as our guest. Welcome, Sean. Uh, Thank you for having me. Excellent. Tell us a little about how you got to the work that you do. Um, What was what was your road to this to this calling? And uh, and then we'll get into what work that you do about compassion and the intergender relations in the workplace and all that stuff. But yeah, how did you arrive at this point? So there there are there are many there are many moments in the past in this path that that have really I think been indicators of uh, keeping me on on track with it. I would say the you know I, I, growing up I, I grew up uh, the the son of truck drivers. Mm. And so actually it was my father drove a truck for 43 years. My grandfather drove a truck. My mother was on the road with my dad driving a truck. And then I came along and um, I growing up, you know, probably in my, I I was always a little, I was always a little different. I was always a little, um, probably more on the androgynous side. And um, I remember I had like seven calyx and so I had very curly hair and a high-pitched voice and people just couldn't tell if I was a boy or a girl. And um, that created a lot of confusion for me because my models were these, you know, hyper-masculine truck driving father, grandfather. That was where I came from. And I also was born in a small town in, in Northwest Ohio. So it was just, uh, there, there was a certain way you were supposed to be. Um, and I just wasn't that way. And um, actually, when I was uh, 16, I, I came out as a gay man. And uh, I started a gay and lesbian youth group for the city of Dayton, Ohio, which uh, still exists today, like 20-something years later. And a lot of my decisions um, around my purpose and my calling and what I'm supposed to do I often revert back to my 16-year-old self and say, what am I really passionate about and what am I called to do and where, what, is my, what is my sense of service? How do I serve? And so that 16-year-old moment was always a reminder of me. And what's happened over my career is that when I have followed title, money, or status, I've always fallen on my face. Right. When I've taken that question of going back to what is my what am I really being called to do? What speaks to my heart and speaks to my intuition? That's where I've really seen these moments of, um, of insight and really connecting to what I'm meant to do. And that's, that's really kind of been the, the path. So where that led me was to work on Wall Street. And um, of course. yeah, yeah. I mean, I followed the path and, you know, I think uh, what happened was I started to, because I was, androgynous in my teen, in my, in my youth, in my teens, 
in my twenties, I'm like, I'm just going to be hyper-masculine and I'm just going to like play this game. And that's what took me to wall street. Mm. And so I was following the, the, I was following those threads and I was miserable. I was, I was struggling with uh, not being comfortable in my own skin, struggling with uh, addiction around sex, drugs, and you'd say food and workaholism and, and being the Lone Ranger and, and isolation was my friend. Um, yet on paper, I looked amazing. And on my 40th birthday, um, I was consulting on Wall Street and I walked into my CEO's office and I said, I've lost my heart and my soul on this job. And as my birthday present, I resigned. Wow. And then within two weeks, uh, a friend of mine said, hey, you know, this, we've been talking about this company, Eileen Fisher. She said, you know, they're hiring. Are you, do you know anyone that's interested? And I said, yeah, you know, I, I think I'd be interested. You know, it's, I kept hearing about this company that as a consultant for 20 years and a college professor, um, I'd never seen or heard about an organization that was doing what Eileen Fisher was doing. And so I'm like, I just have to, as a, as an organization de- a development practitioner, I just have to see what this culture is about. Like what, what is this place that is so radical? And so I applied, uh, I went through an eight month interview process. I got the job and I became the internal change. I, essentially it's internal change agent for their creative teams. But first, I mean, so a few things that were different. One, I had an eight month interview Yeah. and it wasn't just like an eight month interview um, where I was going along the process. I was literally the finalist after two months and I was vetted for job fit over the next six months or for culture fit for the next six months to see if I would really resonate it and, and, and connect with that environment and, and did my values align. And they really framed it like you don't, you know, you're the finalist, but you don't have the job yet. No, it was clear that I was the finalist because I was the only person interviewing for the next six months. Right. But you weren't in. And I don't think they were very clear. I mean, it wasn't that they was explicit. This is a culture. This is for culture fit. It just became obvious from the interviews that this was about resonance and, and culture fit. The last interview I had was with the culture officer, chief culture officer of my two bosses. And the, the framing of it was, we want to see how you've been transformed by being in this eight-month interview process, which I think that just speaks to a level of processing that you typically don't see in an, in an organization. I think the, the, the moment that changed things was where I really, like a moment, a pivotal moment for me was on my first day. And my two bosses sat me down at lunch and said, to Sean, you have proven yourself in the interview process. We now want you to stop proving yourself and learn to be who you authentically are. And in that, we're going to be, we're going to support you even when it gets messy. And I think that was permission. And I think it was permission that we don't typically get in corporate settings and we definitely don't get as men. Right. Which is to let go of the the image or the mask or the, the what we project into the world and, sh- and go to a place of vulnerability, go to a place of um, um, really looking at ourselves and, and, and getting the, the latitude to really explore all dimensions of ourselves. Yes. So the, where that was then tested was three weeks later when I was in Eileen's living room. So Eileen Fisher, Eileen, the, the person, um, in her living room at her house and 
doing an all day offsite as a as a as a participant on on creative on creativity, and finding myself doing interpretive dance to a poem about a bumblebee finding her nectar, while dream drums were beating in the background, That's in front of my whole team at Eileen's house, and yeah, so. And then my boss came up chuckling, saying, you know, you're in a different world now. And that was one of the first moments of going, oh, things are different here. And <clears throat> what I often, uh, you know, I was Island Fisher for five years. When a lot of people say, you know, when they have an experience that's about that long, they're like, oh, I, had an, I had a crash course MBA in X. If I were to say what this crash course was, it was in compassion, authenticity, and deconditioning from the traditional masculine models that I have grown up with and that I have seen in most corporate settings that are built on a traditional masculine model. Well, Eileen Fisher had created a, a half a billion dollar company based on the feminine. Sure. Where the intuition was valued as much, if not more, than the data and the metrics. Right. And so they need people to be in that vibration to effectively work there, right? Right. Yeah. And, um, but there is an allowance for um, intuitive thinking, collaborative thinking, collaborative problem solving, and really setting the conditions to allow for um, authenticity and kindness. And so that permeated throughout the entire organizational culture. And I think that we talk a lot these days about creating authentic human-centered cultures where you can be authentic. What I don't see is organizations truly doing the systems change work to allow for authenticity to actually happen. Right. Is, the, is the organizational system and the leadership prepared for people to bring their authentic selves that blends the, their professional and their personal, that allows them to come in with their feelings and allows for the true creative expression that we actually need these days to solve and handle and address increasingly complex organizational and societal challenges that are coming from a place of a lot more ambiguity, a lot less structure, a lot less, um, and, and, a, and, a, and a radical shift in, in, in power dynamics yep. that are happening on so many different levels that in order to address these challenges, we need people to be able to tap into their creativity and their innovative, innovative minds in new ways and do it in a way that's collaborative and collective and be able to get the best out of the collective energy, not just one person being the savior trying to bring in their great ideas. Right. So you're saying that a top-down patriarchal-type leadership setup it's not uh, compatible with this type of culture. I don't, I, not with this culture. And I think with where we're going as a society, it's not going to be the way of the future way of thinking about leadership. Right. You know, I think I was just looking at, you know, some of the gurus and, and one person said the future of leadership is collaborative and servant leadership. I think what we have been tapping into are various manifestations of servant leadership that looks like collaborative leadership, embodied leadership, transformational leadership, um, feminine leadership. But these are, these are all moving in a direction that, that goes, again, goes 
against the grain of command and control leadership to an empower-based leadership that takes fear out of the out of the equation and redefines the measure of success. Redefines what what how how do we view success in competition versus collaboration and solving problems from a mission purpose-based perspective that allows for individuals um, to really have a different type of relationship to work into their organizations Mm -hmm. as the psychological contract continues to shift. um, And, and, and as I said earlier, the the shifts in power dynamics also come into play. Yeah. What forces do you think is, is helping this evolution? Is it, I mean, finally waking up to the planets in trouble, the earth itself, or is it, is it just the, the patriarchy being like the me too and the patriarchy being questioned. And then, cause part, part of me thinks that once like, forget about the origins of this, once it's there, then good luck retaining employees under general patent. You know, I think it's, um, I'm five things that kind of pop into mind. So let me see if I can come up with the, the five that are, they're, they're permeating in my mind. One, I think with the, with the emergence, I mean, we think about the number of coaches that are out there, which means the number of people that are being coached, the number of people that are doing mindfulness work, yoga, mindfulness and meditation work, breath work, um, men's work. Um, there are all these different channels. I think that people are seeking something beyond themselves. And as we move from a religious society to a spiritual, not religious, um, world that regardless if it's religious if it's spiritual this whole idea of consciousness and 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 being able to tap into there's something greater than ourselves and there's a there's a connection that we have with others i think a lot of these modalities that exist today that people are tapping into because they're seeking more both in their development their self-actualization and their desire for connection that that's just creating sort of a groundswell from the bottom up. Mm. I think the second is that organizations, I think there's so much conversation around the profitability of companies, the money at the top, where the workers are in terms of wage, power, and relationship and loyalty to their organization, that there's a, there's, and that, there's an expense of, of, of potential burnout for so many people. They're working long hours. They're not making the money. They don't have the lives that they want. And I think that that burnout um, and lack of, of true um, integrated well-being is, is going to be a cost for organizations. Again, another grounds. I think the third thing is that you have women moving into positions of power and Women, a lot of men don't know what to do with that. You add in the the dynamics around me, you know, the realities of me too, and a lot of men are saying, "I'm not going to advance women, or I'm not going to mentor women out of fear." Mm. So, me too, combined with the power shifts, the, the the and that women are finding their ways of of, of being in their voice and. Then the question is, are men allowing women to truly be in their power and in their, in their voice? And not just masculinized women. Right. Well, and that's, 
what I often say is our based on our conditioning and then what's what's projected upon us in corporations specifically, but in most aspects of organizational setting, they've been on, they've been built on traditional masculine models that prefer men and say that we should all be gravitating to the way that men operate and think, which is through the head and less about the heart. There's less latitude for men or women or those who are non-binary to really be able to express fully and have the freedom for emotional and creative expression, tapping into the intuitive to then inform the mind and how to make better decisions. Right. Right. So you take that into account. And then what I often say is women are often walking around from a place of the wounded masculine and feminine in corporate spaces because they're not allowed to express the feminine. And there's not a lot of roadmaps or models for what the healthy masculine looks like for women in business settings. And then for a lot of men, not all men, but for a lot of men, you have the hyper-masculine with the anemic feminine because it's very scary and very threatening and triggering to talk about the feminine that is within each of us as men. And so I often break it down that we can talk about our biology, we can talk about our gender identity and expression, then we can talk about the constructs of masculinity and femininity, which have informed through social, parental, familial, and societal conditioning and media how we're supposed to be in the masculine, feminine, connected to gender. Mm. So we're operating with that. And then we have this fourth level, which is the truth of our masculine and feminine energy within each of us that we have either allowed to drive or we've suppressed based on the constructs of the masculine, the masculinity and femininity models. So when we can, when we can come to this place of accessing the parts of ourselves that we've denied, and often when I do workshops around the masculine feminine, um, regardless of gender and regardless of how you present, within you, the masculine to the feminine, you may be leading with one. And then the question is, if I lead with my masculine, what's the cost by not tapping into my, my feminine? If I'm a man who taps and who drives with the, mas- the feminine, but don't tap into my masculine enough, what's the cost? Same questions for women who are leading with the masculine or feminine. And then there, there are those of us then that in time can balance and integrate the masculine and the feminine. And the question is, what did it take to get there and what's been the benefit? Yes. And I think there's a lot of people that when they realize there's a liberation that happens when you can tap into the masculine and feminine that actually strengthens the masculine and makes you a more well-rounded human being. Yep. And this conversation around the masculine and feminine is not, uh, that's not the conversation. It really is about how do we tap into our deeper humanity. Right. I just want to add, I think the two other things, we have so much unrest happening in the world. So you mentioned climate change. I think the political climate and, and less about the politics and more about the division that it's created of an us versus them. I think the racial tensions that we have in our society that are limiting us from really seeing each other human to human, the gender divide that we have. Um, and then, and then um, you know, you can add to it uh, sexual politics, uh, sexuality. Um, I think there's so much division and so much fear, yet such a yearning for connection, which I think the la- that's the last piece I want to say, is that 
the social media, and I said this when we first started seeing social media, that um, it creates this faux intimacy. And I think that as a society, as an individualistic culture, where it's about power, money, prestige, status, and success, and moving up, that we lose sight of our, our basic need, which is to be authentic, to be heard, to be valued, to be seen, to be connected, and to be in connection with others. And I think for a lot of people, there's the fears, the injuries, the wounding that many of us have prevents us from connecting truly to love, connects us to truly to, to connection and to intimacy. And I think these combinations lead to a lot of behaviors that maybe we wouldn't want to be doing, but that's the way that we think we can get the connection and the validation and the needs that we need. So I think this is just off the top of my head, the five things that are popping up for me that may be driving us to be doing some of this deeper work and seeking other models of, of connection, integration, and leadership. Wow. That's, I admire your ability to pause, think, feel, and then encompass all of that and bring it, bring it in. That's, that's amazing. Thank you. Well, I, I was talking to someone the other day, and she, she also does masculine and feminine work. And we both agreed, like, this, it's not that I want to be pigeonholed as the masculine feminine converse, energy conversation guy. Um, but it's, a, it's, an, it's an entry point into a conversation that gets us connected to our, our, to our deeper selves. Um, and I think from that, from connecting to our deeper selves, we can then start to access our, our insight and our wisdom, both individually and collectively, around what's really going on in the world. And how can we start to have access to start exploring in constructive ways, not destructive and divisive ways? How can we solve some of these challenges? Because ultimately, I think where we're driving to is reimagining the systems that have oppressed and divided us. You know, rebuilding those systems, rebuilding a new way of leading rebuilding a new way of connecting that's based on authenticity, connection, healing, and, and love. So when you look at a company, are you looking at the structural leadership or do you, do you start with going in and having all the people at the company look within themselves because it's, or, or is it simultaneous? There's this, um, that's a great question. As you were talking, you were toggling between the between the dynamics in a company and in the whole world and everything happening inside of yourself. I'm, I'm working on an article right now that looks at this connection between personal transformation, organizational transformation, and societal transformation. And my belief is that we need to look first within ourselves and... So we talk a lot about transformational leadership these days. What we don't do is the, the up, oftentimes we're not doing the upfront integration work that really looks at our shadow, our ego, and what ways might be getting, what, what might be our self-sabotaging ways that when the pressure and stress of holding large-scale transformation comes upon us, 
that we might, based on insecurities or ego or fear, not be able to put our voice, not be able to connect and not be able to be of service in a way that makes it about the bigger whole than ourselves. You're saying under stress, the, the, some smaller aspect of somebody comes out? I think so. And that's the place we don't, we don't talk enough about, the places we get stuck, the places we get triggered. And so I think uh, the way I often approach this is first, I don't typically go speaking to HR and, and leader, leadership and, and learning. Um, right out of the gate, because I find that we're talking about work that's more unconventional, mm-hmm. and it's hard to, to articulate the ROI of this type of work, right? Yet, when you see personal transformation work being done in an organization, when you see um, when you see this deeper level work happening, it happens in a way that seeds are planted just not in the time frame of a three-month experience right so to allow for the seeds to be planted and to grow over time and to take a step back and say let me find the enlightened leaders and organizations that are seeking a different and better way of leading and doing being able to experiment where they have more latitude in their budgets to be able to say, here's a new idea. Here's a way that's going to get people to tap in to their more authentic selves, to their more compassionate selves. And what start to ask questions, what becomes possible when we're, when we're able to do that? And when women and men and those who are non-binary and those who are trans are able to come into a room and really elevate the masculine and feminine energy to be on imbalance, This is less of a gender equity conversation and more of a balancing conversation. Because one of the things that we don't, I find that we don't do with, um, when we talk about organization, companies that have more women in senior leadership, we say they outperform those that don't by by 15 to 20, maybe 35%. Mm -hmm. But what we don't say is what feminine leadership and what women in, in senior leadership are bringing to the equation that we want to value and that we need. Right. Yeah. So when we think about the nurturing and care, it's actually going to create greater employee retention. When we think about um, the differences in risk, the ways we look at risk, long-term and short-term, the ways we go beyond the what we want to achieve to how are we going to get there and how do we do it in an inclusive way that gets buy-in and uses invitation. The way that we move from being an action-oriented, get-things-done-mode to let's create spaciousness, spaciousness to reflect, to let's look at um, the need for self-care and well-being as opposed to burning ourselves out because we want to project the perfect image of we got everything covered. I think these things and, 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 and the ways that we look at things strategically, the ways that the feelings can be of, of value, and often I say when it comes to emotions, You have two choices whenever I talk to a leader. You can ignore the emotions you have and let them control you, or you can be aware of the emotions and learn how to manage them. But regardless, they're always going to be influencing if you're conscious of them or not. So why not be more conscious of them so they're not going to take control? And that's one of the things that I think that women have much more access to because they've been given permission over a longer period of their lives to be able to do that. Right. Then we can look at 
from a creativity standpoint, what does that actually, how does that help us to be more creative? When we can access more parts of ourselves, our left and our right brain thinking, we're then able to create in new ways and solve problems in, in, you know, differently. So I think those are, um, that's something for us to really consider um, as we think about um, how do we create this balance. Absolutely. So what, how does a company look when it has the feminine integrated well into it? I, I, I thought of one in a hyper-masculine environment, like let's say the Navy SEALs, they have an after-action report or an after-action meeting. So they go on a mission, they come back, and they all sit around and, and honestly critique. It just seems to me like, you know, I, I bet none of those Navy SEALs think of that as a feminine trait or, or an activity. But I think it is. And I think what yeah. else? So let's keep going with the Navy SEALs. The bonding that has to happen among Navy SEALs, the camaraderie, the care for each other and the putting others before themselves. You know, there's something in the way that that those teams and those, those, those group of men and women, um, are, they form these bonds. There is something coming from the feminine that allows that to happen because the, the place of vulnerability, trust, and honesty, I think that that ability to go to that place of vulnerability which begets, which begets the uh, the the trust, you know, is so critical. Right. Um, the the ability to expose, and my guess is there is permission to express the feelings of sorrow and fear in, in some of their missions. That it may not be explicit, but there may be pockets where that's allowed to be shown, and that really is showing me your humanity as opposed to showing your feminine. Mm. And, and I, I think that's the thing we want to look at. When we talk about integrating the masculine and feminine, we're talking about coming into our humanness. We're not talking about being more male or female or less than or weak or strong. We're just being human. And ultimately, I think that's what we're talking about. Like full-spectrum humanity. Yeah, full-spectrum humanity and, and access and an agility to be able to navigate any situation and circumstance from a place of thoughtful response as opposed to knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, and that's why I hear some of the some of the people who have been involved in that kind of thing say that, you know, physically there's a whole bunch of people who can do the physical stuff, but it's the you know, the ability to slow yourself down and some of the things that I've heard you talk about, the pause and the, you know, composing yourself and that's the difference. I think another, another dimension of this, when you are head, heart, and body connected, you know, so your head, your logic meets your feelings and your heart meets your intuition. Think about it as you have much more to work with, much more to pull from in decision-making than you do if you just use your logical head. Right. And then you can add the fourth dimension, which is spirit and, and your own connection to your spirituality. So and that's that unconscious inner wisdom and inner knowing that can then inform the intuition, which can 
have an impact on the heart, which can then inform more thoughtful, responsive, responsible decisions that are taking more elements of what's happening in the world into account in your decision-making beyond your own need and beyond maybe the wounding that the ego is really needing and, and, and driving for when that can be relaxed, not eliminated and not suppressed, but relaxed. That also allows the flow from head, heart to intuition, to spiritual connection to really happen and transpire. Oh, that's beautiful. So was I hearing that spirit allows like a self-trusting? I think it's the other way around. I think self I think the trusting allows for spirit to flow. Mm. You know, I think when you can trust that there's something beyond yourself, you know, and you can go any different ways. You can, it can be a God, it can be Muhammad, it can be the divine, it can be higher power, or it could be the human down the street, but it's something beyond yourself that you're seeing humanity and goodness and fairness and, 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 and love. Yeah. You know, one of the things, so I, like I said, I'm, I'm in seminary. I'll be ordained as an interfaith minister in uh, three months. And the, the calling that I've received, which I wasn't expecting. So there's the, the work that I'm talking to you about. But then there's this other conversation, which is um, doing spiritual retreats with men around this idea of, of love, sex, and intimacy through the sacred masculine. So a couple of things on that. One, we talk a lot about the divine feminine. We don't talk enough about the sacred masculine, which is dependent and connected to the divine feminine, which allows us to come into our sacredness as human beings. When, and, that, and, and I look at, you know, so many men, and, and based on our conditioning, we have been said, we have been told to go it alone, don't show emotions, um, don't express fear. Be tough. Suck it up. Be tough. But, but the cost is often our inability to create true, meaningful relationships. You know, the statistics is that at over 35, at the age of 35, men typically stop developing friendships, adult friendships, right? They often, if, they, if they're in heterosexual relationships, they will take on the, the relationships of their wives or spouses. Um, it may look different in, 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 in the LGBTQ community, but at the same time, um, the loneliness and isolation, I think, is such a, a critical epidemic for, for so many. So many, I think, across the board. But I, I think there's also so much misconception and so much confusion and so much restriction around sex and sexuality. At the same time, um, I think love is elus elusive for so many. We don't necessarily know what love is. And I often said earlier on when I was in my struggles, okay, it's great that you tell me to love myself, but what's the roadmap to doing that? Right. I don't think a lot of us know how to love ourselves. I don't think a lot of us know what true love can feel like. And, and love beyond romantic relationships. Love for my neighbor, love for my brother, love for my friend, love for my romantic partner, love for members, if I'm, if I'm straight, for the opposite sex. How can I do this in a way that's platonic and yet still be a loving relationship? So not that we all suffer or struggle with this, but I think there's a lot of confusion around it. Yep. And the flip side of it is I think there's a much more confusion around intimacy. And what is intimacy? And I think it's the thing that many of us yearn for, and it's the thing that... that 
is a struggle for so many. And we revert to casual sexual encounters as a way to counter the need and desire for intimacy. So I think there's something in this work that really gets to some of our core work that we need to do as men that can also give us a sense of liberation, a sense of connection, and to break down the walls of isolation that separate us and often take us to either destructive or self-destructive behaviors that can create um, a withdrawal from society, especially as we get older, withdrawal from, from connecting or a perspective that takes us out of the healthy way that we want to be and show up in the world. Sure. Yeah, there's that anecdote of, you know, older divorces where the woman thrives and the man just, you know, shrinks up and, and uh, yeah. has, no, has no resources, like you said. There's, yeah. there's, a, there's a classic exercise or process in men's work that I'm sure you've been a part of and you, you probably do at your workshops, but where you... you divide the room in the spectrum of, you know, alpha men and sensitive men, perfectly balanced in the middle, which mm-hmm. there's no, never anyone in the middle. And then you, um, you start, you know, you, you start acting like the, you have the alpha guys act like they act and exaggerate it. And then you have the sensitive guys act like they act. And is that, and then you sit down in groups, it mixed groups. And it's like, what is this? Like you were saying, what does this cost you? What's the plus? Well, the plus is I'm, you know, I got a good job, and and what's the minus? Oh, I, I don't know anybody. You know, no, I don't really right. know anybody. So, um, I I love this. This is, I mean, the the question I would have as we as we wind down is, how do you, as you approach corporations, like like were you saying that it you need a somewhat awake leader or person to like an advocate in a company or how do you, how do you crack the lesser? Like if obviously there's, you know, there's enlightened leaders who are like, come on in, let's do this. But what about, what about the middle, uh, the middle ground? I would say less the awake leader and more the open leader. So I think there, I think there's work that I do that's like pretty straightforward and clear. It's like leadership through the lens of the healthy masculine feminine. Let's reimagine the systems. But then for other organizations, it's let's just demystify this idea of gender. What does gender look like in 2020? So before we even get to gender equity, let's just talk about our relationship to gender today. Because when you think about how much things have changed in five years or 10 years, you know, I think you can go, what's happened with Me Too? What's happened with, with, with the shifting dynamics, gender dynamics in the workplace, the roles that women are, are taking, the inclusion of, of more people who identify as gender fluid, gender non-binary, or trans. What do these pronouns mean? What, what, what do I do? How do we prepare? How do we support? Um, how do I look at my own stuff around that? And, and then you have so much of a conversation around toxic masculinity that a lot of people don't want to even go into that conversation. Yet, if we reframe it from toxic masculinity to the wounded masculine and start to define what does healthy masculinity or compassionate masculinity look like, there's a whole opportunity to say, all of these are happening. How do we make sense of the zeitgeist? And how do we, how do we then say through collective group conversations with either men, women, or men, women, and, and in, uh, across the gender spectrum to say, 
what do we do with it now? To uh, other work that I do, which is um, I do a lot of Enneagram-based work, which is getting to integration work through a tool and assessment that's, that's, that's sound and has thousands of years of, of history from, from spiritual context to organizational to corporate, that there are, I, I often look at it, there are, def- there are different ways to come into these conversations. Yep. Um, and I meet people where they are. I meet leaders where they are. But the idea is if we really want to do this work on the depth that's required to really create the change that we want to see, that's where I think we, we go to some of the more open, curious, and seeking leaders and say, let's experiment. Let's see what the results are. And based on those results, others are going to want to, to be involved in, 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 and yes. be exposed to this. So that's really been more of my approach. I was, I was fortunate um, when I was at Eileen Fisher, that I was part of a mindfulness leaders consortium. So I was meeting monthly with mindfulness leaders at IBM, GE, Caterpillar, 3M, um, Boeing, and uh, Amazon. And those companies, you know, we were, I found that we were all coming from a spiritually driven place. We're socially conscious. We wanted to elevate consciousness. Companies would really just have the tolerance for let's focus on the attention and how does it connect to performance and, and productivity? And how can this be a tool? Just mindfulness meditation part. Presence and attention so that you're, you're really clearing the mind to be more attentive. Right. Right. But from that place, ultimately all these other things can happen. Consciousness, connection, deeper sense of self, deeper sense of, of self-compassion and connection to emotions. But we were all talking about how are we the translators? And I find that when people are breaking from convention of what's traditional, it becomes very important to look at how do we, how do we become the translators? While we don't lose the integrity of the message where we are meeting people where they are, and I was actually just talking to someone this morning about our political situation. And as much as we can have um, the disruptive views, the question is, like, we can be disruptors. My question, and I'm taking out of politics, but just in general, if we disrupt, how do we view this from a place of unifying as opposed to dividing? Right. Well, we're not making people wrong. We're not segregating groups. But we're saying there are ways that we can be, we can talk about disruption in a way that speaks to the, the challenges and needs of every person right. and speak to their humanity. But I think that's work that we don't often have the patience to do. And that's work that we don't often have the, we haven't done our own work enough to have the maturity to be able to go to those places, to look beyond the things that piss us off and say, where do I see the gift and where do I see the opportunity in this that we can actually unify, unite, and connect so that we can solve these problems together differently? Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge swing from uh, toxic masculinity, like you, you're, you're broken guy over there, like you got to fix yourself, to, hey, you're really good, you're really assertive, but there's other tools you could have. You know, you could be you 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 could be able to do this. Oh, wow! You know, but it, but you're right. The translator's got to be very skilled to ease it in there. 
I, I love the work you're doing. It's amazing. And I love how you can, you can synthesize it. You're a very good translator. Thank you so much. And we're, we're at about time, but uh, share where people can find you, what's coming up. So uh, you can find me at uh, symponiainc.com, which is S-Y-M-P-O-N-I-A-I-N-C.com. That's my website. On my events, you can you can see past podcasts, uh, speaking engagements, and in terms of upcoming events, I, I do a fair amount with Be Social Change here in New York City, and I'm, we're also working on a new program at uh, the Open Center on spiritual leadership through the lens of the divine masculine and feminine. Um, so that's a work in progress. But uh, you know, I've been at this for 14 months. I think I've finally gotten to the getting to the, the, the clarity of what it is I'm actually doing and also having an openness that every time I have one of these conversations, like I just had with you, new insights around how I see this work continues to emerge. So it's always this, you know, it comes from a very deep place and based on also 20, 25 years of experience, consulting, teaching, and um, just being a human being in this world. Um, and so I, I, I think that there will be more to come. Um, and if you want, uh, join my newsletter on my website and I will um, get you looped in, whoever wants to, to join into the conversation of what I'm up to next. Perfect. And I'll, yeah, I'll put all the links underneath the um, podcast on the, on the site. So thank you so much. Amazing talk. Hopefully I can have you on again as, as things evolve and it was awesome. Yeah, totally. I didn't, I didn't know most of what I was going to say today. <laughs> right. Well, that's why it was beautiful that we just, we just hit record. So yeah. Thanks. Yeah. But this is sort of what's happening more and more. So, exactly. but yeah, this was, this was great. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the key to culture podcast sponsored by Quantius, the premier marketing agency for emerging technology. Quantius smart, Fast, curious.